Researchers apply the principles of synthetic biology to address some of the most pressing human health challenges and probe the deepest questions of what constitutes life. Programming living cells and organisms to function in particular ways is no small task. What if, instead, scientists could produce synthetic minimal cells that mimic some of the most basic properties of biological cells, but without the intrinsic complexity of living systems? Researchers are doing just that. They develop creative ways to use bacterial components to construct synthetic cells for life science applications, including cancer research. This is both a science and an art form. But a particular researcher takes the process of creation one step further, drawing inspiration from her work as a synthetic biologist to create digital art. Welcome to The Scientist Speaks, a podcast produced by the Scientist Creative Services team. Our podcast is by scientists and for scientists. Once a month, we bring you the stories behind newsworthy molecular biology research. This episode is brought to you by NamoCell. In the field of synthetic biology, where precision and control are paramount, NamoCell single-cell dispensers are designed for exceptional accuracy and efficiency, allowing researchers to isolate single cells with ease. With NamoCell's technology, scientists can unlock new possibilities in genetic engineering, gene editing, and the creation of customized biological systems, accelerating the progress in this exciting field. In this episode, Iris Kolbatsky from the Scientist Creative Services team spoke with Kate Adamala, an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota and a synthetic biologist working on engineering artificial cells, to learn more about the latest advances in using synthetic biology for cancer therapy applications. When Kate Adamala was a child growing up in a small Polish town, she dreamed of being a scientist. Inspired by astrobiologists depicted on spaceships and science fiction movies, she set her sights on studying the origin of life on Earth and life elsewhere in the universe. Eventually, she pursued a career path as an academic scientist and turned to synthetic biology as a way to launch her passion for foundational science research that has real-world translational potential. Even before I really knew what it means to be a scientist. I had those completely wrong romantic ideas as you see in the movies, and I wanted to do that. As I got deeper into it, I started realizing that there's more, not just the foundational research, but also the practical applications that can be translated into real life changes, not just this interesting science of studying life on Mars, but also what can help medicine or make something better about some part of the world. That led me to synthetic biology because it's a really nice combination of foundational research about the origin of life, the nature of life, how life works, but it also has a lot of practical applications. I'm studying those inherently really fascinating basic science questions, but somewhere down the line, there is a drug or a technology that can help make people's life better. That's the ultimate sweet spot for me. I'm doing something that's fascinating but also has practical applications. I feel like I'm doing something useful, even though I'm mostly having fun doing it. I wanted to run my own lab. I had no idea what it takes. I had no idea how much luck is involved. I did end up running my own lab. It did work out and I'm obviously super happy. The field of synthetic biology pushes the scientific limits of creativity by engineering synthetic functional biological systems from bits and pieces of organic molecules like protein and DNA. 
This can be anything from a chemical or drug to more sophisticated entities like bacteria and other cells that mimic life but are in fact machines. The rationale for creating synthetic cells may seem counterintuitive at first. Why build a cell from scratch when they are abundant in nature? Programming living cells and organisms to behave in ways that go against their natural evolved tendencies is challenging. Researchers create synthetic cells because they are simple, predictable, and controllable. They act like programmable liposomal bioreactors, or in other words, rudimentary biological computers or factories. As minimalistic models of biological cells, they are not alive, but they do mimic certain elements of natural biology. Right now, we only have one life form. That's the life as we know it. All of the modern life on Earth came from the one last universal common ancestor, from the one origin of life event. All of life and biology is a single sample size. All of the biotech research done until now was done on a single sample, that of modern terrestrial life. And that's funny when you think about it, because if we want to generalize about life, if we want to say life does certain things in a certain way because these are the properties of a living matter, we cannot really say that right now because we only have one example of life. All of life on Earth is related. It came from the same ancestor. So it's really hard to generalize. And because it's hard to generalize, it's also hard to control. It's difficult to design living organisms to do exactly what we want. We want to make living cells from scratch, from non-living components, from very well-defined chemical components. And once we make a living cell, we'll be able to say we really understand life as a phenomenon because we made it from scratch. We made it in the lab and we can fully control it because we built it. Practical consideration of these concepts is apparent in the cancer field. Researchers explore new avenues for diagnostics and therapies that use living cells such as CAR T cells to detect or cure cancer. Much progress has been made in these areas, but a fundamental challenge remains, namely the difficulty of engineering natural cells to have a diagnostic or therapeutic application while controlling the myriad other ways that they may affect the host. This is where synthetic cell engineering comes in. If I want to make a cell to detect metastatic pancreatic cancer, I can build that cell specifically for that purpose. That cell is not going to do something else, for example, cause a cytokine storm or cause interactions with another tissue in a patient. If I build it correctly, it will interact only with the particular type of cells that I design it to interact. This is the disadvantage of programmability. You make cells from scratch, so then you can program them, you can design them to do exactly what you want. The same is true when researchers try to manipulate natural bacteria to detect cancer and deliver targeted therapy. For example, bacteria can be manipulated to express specific fluorescent proteins in the presence of metastatic cancer cells. Once injected into the bloodstream, they circulate freely and act as a biomarker of disease if cancer is present. However, working with bacteria in this way poses a challenge to scientists. Bacteria are a biological entity that have evolved to function in certain ways under specific conditions and environmental pressures. These rapid evolutionary processes are not always easily controlled. Despite being unicellular organisms, the complexity and robustness of bacteria stem from the fact that they have evolved to survive, reproduce, and adapt to hostile environments. If bacteria that are used to detect or treat cancer evolve and reproduce unchecked, 
the results could be disastrous for cancer patients who are already immune-compromised. For this reason, Adamala and her team do not reprogram bacteria, but rather engineer synthetic cells using bacterial components, the molecular machinery that make up those cells. Instead of building a whole cell completely from scratch, from non-living elements, we take some elements of bacteria, those of the translation system, the genome, membrane proteins, and other bacterial proteins. We separate it from that complex context of the whole bacteria. Single elements, like single tools from a toolbox, and redesign it into a new cell, the synthetic cell, that then hopefully will do exactly what we want it to do without this complex background of the whole bacterial cell. We mostly work with bacteria because they're the easiest to work with, at least for us. We grow bacteria, purify components from them by lysing the bacteria. If you need to translate proteins in a synthetic cell, you purify ribosomes then from the rest of the elements of the bacterial cell. The DNA that we use most of the time is bacterial genes. For other components of the synthetic cells, we use lipids that are either purified from natural sources or chemically synthesized. And then we mix all those bacterial components with the lipids at the right pH, at the right concentration. That's our simplest synthetic cell. Adamala and her team recently examined how synthetic cells respond to infection in order to expand the repertoire of synthetic cell models for normal biological processes as well as disease. They engineered synthetic host and parasitic cells, induced infection, and found that their synthetic cells mimic natural biological reactions to infection. They could infect one another, be parasitic, exhibit protective behavior, and develop immunity. Because these are non-living synthetic cell model systems, the cells do not replicate or evolve. The terms infection, parasite, and immunity are conceptual. For example, a deadly infection in this context refers to a significant reduction in translational potential by synthetic cells, rather than actual cell death. I wasn't expecting how complex the interactions between those relatively simple cells will be. There's a lot of subtle dynamics that you would only think should be happening in a very highly evolved natural living systems. They already are emerging in those very simple synthetic cells. Such insights have practical applications for cancer treatment. Cancer cells are detected and neutralized by a healthy host immune system on a regular basis. When this process of checks and balances breaks down, cancer cells proliferate uncontrollably. Using synthetic cell systems to better understand the mechanisms by which immune cells recognize hostile cancer cells may help researchers develop more robust strategies to support this process and minimize the incidence of cancer. The work we've done with synthetic cells helps us build very simple but controllable models of those processes. Synthetic cells, they're simple, they're very easy to understand. We can build those models of host infection relationships and of immune systems, we can try to understand it better and maybe one day we can engineer the complex natural immune systems to be more effective at catching cancer cells. Researchers adhere to the same safety standards and protocols when handling synthetic cells as live cells. But synthetic cells are not considered to be alive, yet. Insofar as biomedical applications are concerned, the fact that synthetic cells are non-living makes them easier to regulate and improves the likelihood 
that they will be approved as a therapy. But it turns out that the fundamental question of aliveness is not entirely straightforward, because there is no scientific definition that draws a clear line between what is alive and what is not. Moreover, the threshold for crossing into the realm of aliveness is rather nebulous. It sounds really funny when you really think about it. So if you ask me, is a dog alive? Obviously, yes, it is. Everyone would agree that a dog is alive. If you ask me if bacteria is alive, sure it is. There is a big debate whether viruses are alive or not. But if you're trying to define at which point matter becomes life, it becomes really tricky. A lot of the field uses the NASA definition of life, and that is a self-replicating chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. And it sounds like a complete definition until you start digging deep into it. According to the NASA definition of life, you, me, and all of our listeners are not alive. Neither of us is a self-replicating and capable of Darwinian evolution on our own. I cannot evolve on my own. If I want to evolve, I need my husband to make kids because that's the way humans undergo Darwinian evolution is by producing children. So a single human, according to a NASA definition of life, is not alive because a single human cannot undergo Darwinian evolution. That's obviously absurd. I consider myself very much alive, but that shows you the shortcomings of every definition of life that science came up with so far. There are other definitions based on homostasis, so maintaining the internal environment separate from the external, but there is a lot of chemical reactions that can maintain homostasis and they're very much not alive. Most of our field tends to agree that the best definition we have is a quote from an American Supreme Court, Justice Porter Stewart, who said, I will know it when I see it. Um, we don't have a very comprehensive scientific definition of life. We cannot say at which point synthetic cells become alive, but we all tend to agree that when they do become alive, we will know it. And I realize that's not a very satisfying explanation. People like clear-cut definitions, especially in science. People like to know that this is the line we're drawing, but it's really difficult if you're thinking about origin of life, building life from scratch. It's difficult to say at which point the non-living matter becomes alive. Adamala is excited about what the future holds for synthetic cell engineering. The field is set to evolve towards building increasingly complex synthetic cells from scratch, which function like natural living cells and mimic more closely the lifelike processes within and between natural cells. There's going to be more synthetic cell systems that behave like things we only attributed to living cells up until now. Genome replication, cell cycle, cell replication, other complex behaviors will be reconstituted in synthetic cells. We'll be able to study those processes in great detail in those kind of simple engineered systems. Despite the scientific rigor and structure inherent in engineering synthetic cell systems, there is also a strong creative element for Adamala as she follows the winding trail of her scientific hunches. When she encounters a challenge, she mulls over the scientific data and tries to understand what she did wrong, rather than ascribing any discrepancies to nature. Finding the error in the design of the synthetic system is the key creative element for Adamala. There's an element of art to this work. We have to predict what the system is going to do. And once it does what we hope, then we can say we truly understand it. We did what we set out to do. But a lot of the time that doesn't happen. 
a lot of the time we design a system, we do the experiments and they just don't work. And there is this teasing out of why it didn't work, what I can do to make it work. That a lot of the time is as much science as an art form. Adamala's laboratory work also inspires her to create scientific illustrations. These creative sparks come to her when she's too tired to crunch data or ponder hardcore scientific questions. In these moments, she sets her tired brain on autopilot and begins creating electronic art related to her research. She prefers the digital medium to paper and recently explored the world of AI art. AI art, I have a period of being in love with it. Now I'm using it less because I like to be creative on my own more than trying to develop prompts for a computer to be creative for me, although that's fun too. Most of the time when I make art, it's inspired by work that I'm doing in my lab or that my collaborators are doing. I want to be able to talk about it to the general public, to the people outside of our field, and it's easier to convince people that something is fascinating if you have cool artwork to show. I wanted to make science illustrations, abstract science illustrations that relate to what I'm doing. That's how that started. Thank you for listening to The Scientist Speaks. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Iris Kolbatsky. Thanks again to NamoCell for sponsoring this episode. Please join us again in January as we learn about the advent of robotically run research and the new era of academic cloud labs on the horizon. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.